You know, a couple of weeks ago, seven to be exact, we started a new class called The Word. The genesis of this is, it, you know, it's kind of interesting how this whole thing came about. Uh, as you know, uh, last July, almost a year ago, I transitioned out of the associate role officially, uh, unofficially, I guess I still kind of play some of that, but I moved into director of the school. We started a brand new Bible college here at Turning Point Church, and and it's, yeah, amen, it's just been, it's been fabulous, and I love it. I, I love the academic environment, I love teaching, learning, and all that, although I don't do much teaching, but... I just love that environment. I love to see God raise up kingdom leaders. Well, one of the things that I saw in one of the classes was a, an instructor was using a program or a, an online teaching called the Bible Project as, as part of the, the curriculum. And I saw it, it was illustrated the Bible in a way I'd never seen illustrated before. And I thought, man, that's so cool. I thought, you know what, everybody needs this. Everybody needs a deeper understanding of the word. And so over the last several months, we, I started thinking about it, started talking to Valerie and Pastor, and, and we decided to put together this Sunday morning class called The Word. Well, when we started seven weeks ago, I, you know, I had no idea who's going to show up. And wow. I was so, I was just absolutely blown away. We had to bring in chairs because we could, I mean, we literally packed the room. Who, who, who's some of my word students in here? <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. I was just, uh, you know, I'm not a numbers guy. I just, uh, but the thing that I was excited about was that there were so many people excited about getting in the word. That's what I was excited about. And, we're in our seventh week, and we've still got more people coming. Man, I'd love to come to this class. And I know there's some people who were thinking about coming, and when I found out how many people were in there, like, well, you know, maybe we'll try and come later. So what we've decided to do, we're going to start a second class on June 25th at 9 o'clock. So if you can't come at 1030, you can come at 9 o'clock. And we're going to start a second class, and we're going to start all over again, starting at Genesis chapter 1. And the way we're doing it, we're going, we're literally going Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22. And it's going to take, I don't know, from now until eternity, somewhere around there. But uh, it's, it's fun, it's exciting, and man, I, I'm just so excited about people getting in the Word. And that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, because our motto, all right, it was all my students... It's all my students, all right? Our motto in this class is what? Oh, man, come on, yell it out. One, two, three. Yeah, make Bible reading great again. Why do we need to do that? Why do we need to be in the Word? You know, we hear that all the time. We hear, oh, you know, you should read the Word. You should read the Bible. You should read... God's word, but the statistics play out that less than 10% of the average church attending Christian reads the Bible every day. Less than 10%. As I mentioned, I'm the director of the Bible College. And one of the things I've noticed over this last year, I've done a lot of recruiting, talked to a lot of people. This particular Bible college has one very specific niche. We're looking for people who are called into full-time ministry. That's all we do. 
We don't do liberal arts. We don't do any other classes. All we do is train people to go into full-time ministry. In the last year, I've talked to a couple, maybe 150, 200 people in some sort of capacity or another who have expressed that, you know, I really think, you know, maybe the Lord's calling me into full-time ministry. And the thing I've discovered is despite the calling, the excuses seem to be bigger. And, you know, when I think about where we are in our current history in the church, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, we are on the precipice, we are on the verge of the greatest move of God we will ever see in history. I believe that. But here's the thing. God's not going to do it on his own. God's plan for the advancement of his kingdom is through his people, through the church. And we need a new generation of leaders to come up and be ready for this next move of God. And in talking to all these folks who say, yeah, you know, I think God's calling me into full-time ministry, and then they just kind of, now, and I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I realize life and there's stuff going on. But here's the thing. As a Christian, in general, and then as one called into full-time ministry in specific, we're called to give up our lives for Jesus. We are called to lay down everything for Jesus. And unfortunately, in the, in the church culture today, and this is not just in relation to those called to full-time ministry, it is a cultural issue in the church. We've got a whole generation of Christians that are doing their own thing. And, I, and I'm not talking about the ones that aren't going to church. I'm talking the ones that are going to church. You know, they're, they're, they're giving their Sundays to Jesus, but they haven't yet given their Mondays or their Tuesdays or their Wednesdays or any other day. Why do we need to be in the Word every day? Well, if you've got your Bible, let's go to Luke chapter 14. Jesus made it very clear very clear what it meant to be a disciple. Jesus doesn't mince words. He doesn't, he doesn't give an unclear call. He made it very clear what it would take to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be one of his disciples. In Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25, Jesus says this, or it says, now great multitudes went with him, Jesus, and he turned to them and said this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's a pretty tall order right there. He doesn't mince any words. 
He speaks straight out. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, attending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? At least after he has, he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who will see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. How many Christians do you know started off great, but they haven't finished? And they got sidetracked in the middle. They've come up with excuses, or they've come up with life issues, or they've come up with every other reason why they can't move on. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far great, or great ways off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all cannot be my disciple. Again, Jesus makes it extremely clear. He requires absolute surrender. There's, there's no holding back. And in, in talking to these folks who say they're called into full-time ministry, yet they have other priorities, I realized, you know, this is not an issue with people called into full-time ministry. This is an issue in the church. This is an issue across the board. It doesn't matter whether you're called into full-time ministry or not. You are called to give your entire life, everything you have, to Jesus. You know, we, we have reduced the gospel to a heaven or hell issue. And it's so much more than that. Is heaven or hell involved? Sure. But that's not the whole thing. We say, hey, you know, if you die today, where would you go? Well, what if you live today? What are you going to do? The gospel's not about what happens tomorrow. It's about what happens today. It's not something in the future. It's something in the present. Jesus doesn't become Lord the second you die. He is Lord right now. And he's not, he's, he's not asking us to die for him physically. He's asking us to die to ourselves for him. See, the dying part's easy. Everybody's going to do it. There's no getting out of it. But can you live for him? See, that's the hard part. Because there's so many other competing issues. There's so many other things you can do. There's so many other good stuff out there that you can be involved in. And there's a lot of other bad stuff out there you can be involved in. And there's a lot of circumstances. See, that's the current situation in the church. And here's the thing. The church is designed to be the moral compass of a, of, of a society. And if the society's compass is off, it's not the society's fault. It's the church's fault. So if the society is moving in the wrong direction, it's not the society's fault. It's the church's fault. Because the issues we have in this country are not political. They're not policy issues. 
They're spiritual issues. And there's only one entity on earth that has the ability, that has the authority to address spiritual issues, and that's the church. So if the, if the, the society is degrading, it's because the church has failed to do its job. So we can, we can sit here and point our fingers at the society and point our fingers at politicians and point our fingers at, at policy, but that's like a, a pilot of an airplane blaming the passengers for the crash. Here's the thing. The Bible says we are all born slaves to sin. That's what this says. Before we come to know Jesus, we don't have a choice. We are slaves to sin. And a society that doesn't know Jesus doesn't, doesn't know any better to do than what it's doing. How does it know better? Because we need to show it. Not point our fingers at it and say, you're going to hell. We need to be the salt and light that God called us to be. But we can't be salt and light if we're not living for Jesus. If we're not giving everything we have, if we are not walking in discipleship. See, the culture has no power over sin. So what's the real problem? Well, in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's where we are in the, in the church in general today. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Oh, I know what to do. I'll go do it. I don't even know. You know, uh, yeah, I show up on Sunday, but I got the rest of the week. No problem. I don't need anybody else to tell me what to do. I'll just go. It's just me and Jesus. You know, we're all good. Everything's happy. I'll just go live my life the way I want to live it. Now, how do I know that that verse is true today? Well, it's because Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And here's the thing. We have a church culture right now that's dealing with pretty much exactly what the culture is dealing with. They're dealing with relationship problems. They're dealing with emotional problems. They're dealing with financial financial problems. They're dealing with career problems. They're dealing with, you name it, we're dealing with it. Addiction. This is not the world. Well, it is, but it's also the church. We're indistinguishable. We're not salt and light. We're like everybody else. And when we go out and we tell people, hey, you know, Jesus, this guy, he's so fabulous, he'll, he'll heal, save, and deliver. 
And then they come and get to know us and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, uh, You got more problems than I do. So what's up with this Jesus guy? How come he's not helping you? Until the gospel is powerful to us, it'll never be powerful through us. And we have a gospel that has the power to heal, save, and deliver. But we have to be willing to experience that first. See, the gospel is not just, I get to go to heaven one day. The gospel is, I get to walk out of my old life into a new life where I'm free from this. Does this mean I I don't have any problems in my life? No. It means I'm walking in victory over them, and they're not walking as over me like a victim. That's what that means. See, the world's looking for an answer. They are. We think nobody wants to hear about Jesus. Everybody wants to hear about Jesus. They just don't know he's the answer. Everybody needs Jesus. He is the answer. And they're looking for him. That's why they're out doing drugs. That's why they're out trying to get all this money and be successful. They're looking for an answer. They just don't know what the answer is. We have the answer. But why are we looking for it elsewhere too? Why are we looking towards all these other things instead of Jesus? Unfortunately, the vast majority of Christians, their lives are marked by death, not life. Their reputations stink. I was a police officer for 10 years, and believe me, I was around death a lot, unfortunately. And there's a distinct smell of death. doesn't matter what it is that died. If it was alive and now it's dead, it has a distinct smell. And when you walk by death, you may not even be aware of it, but you get a whiff of that and you know there's death around here somewhere. And unfortunately, a lot of believers' lives reek of death, not life. See, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life. Not just life, but abundant life. But in that same verse, he also says that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So how do you know who's, who has the most influence in your life? Well, is there more life in your life or is there more death? That's who you're giving more influence to. And it's up to us who we give the influence to. See, when you accept Jesus into your life, Jesus gives you authority over your life again. That's your first promised land. It's not your destiny. It's you and your own life. And if there's things going on in your life that are eating your lunch, it's because you're giving them authority to do that. So why do we need to be in the Word? See, I'm not promoting a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying you're never going to have any problems. 
I'm not saying you're supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and drive a Jaguar and live in a $10 million house. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that Christians should be overcomers and not be overcome. All too many Christians are overcome by their problems rather than overcomers in their problems. Most people live at the level of survival. They're just trying to survive. They're just trying to get day-to-day. You ever heard the, the term living paycheck to paycheck? Well, this is more than just paycheck to paycheck. This is just, I'm just trying to live today. I just need to, if I can just get through today, then we'll see what happens tomorrow. I just need to survive. They're in survival mode. This is the state of belief that sees problems as being in control. These problems dictate the course of one's life and are the primary motivators for that person's actions. Everything in their lives revolves around their problems. Their problem becomes an excuse as to why the person cannot take wise and positive action in a a forward direction. That's survival. And that's where a lot of Christians live. They're just surviving. And their problems become their God. Their problems dictate their actions. Everything in their life revolves around their problems. Their problems become bigger than Jesus. And they allow their problems to dictate their life. God does not want you in survival mode. The next step up from that is stability. It's a better place to be. But instability, this is the state of belief that sees hope in the absence of problems. Man, if I could just get rid of this problem, or as long as this problem stays away, we're okay. The primary goal is to prevent any negative circumstances or challenges from occurring. This person sees problems as a hindrance to doing and becoming more. The fear of future problems becomes the excuse for not taking wise and positive action in the present. Survive or stability becomes a place of paralysis. Where people are like, oh, don't change anything. Because if we add this or we go in this direction or if we change this... Fear becomes the motivator to not do anything different because they lived in survival mode for so long, they're afraid they're going to go backwards so they can't go forward. And they're stuck. Now, the next level after stability is success. Now, this sounds like a good place to be. This is the state of belief that sees security in the abilities and resources of the person. The more influence, resources, abilities, and opportunities the person has, the more secure they feel. This is the foundation of the American dream right here. 
The fear of losing their security becomes your excuse for not taking wise and positive action to move forward. This is the most dangerous place to be. This is comfort. And in this country, that seems to be the goal. Man, if I can just be successful, if I can live the American dream, have a a house, two cars, a dog, two and a half kids, and, you know, I'll be fine. Everything's great, a good income. You know, I'll show up on Sunday, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put my tithe in, and we're all just happy. In the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about the parable of the sower. In the parable of the sower, there are four soils. And the sower sows his seed onto four soils. Three of those soils do not produce anything of kingdom value. They produce zero. Seventy-five percent of the soil produces nothing. This is where the vast majority of people in the church are. They're producing nothing for the kingdom. They're in survival mode, stability, or success. The more you get towards success, the lower the percentage as far as total. 75% of the church lives in that window. And that's why the church has almost zero influence right now in the culture. Because we're all about us. It's all about me, baby. If I can just get here, then, you know, maybe I could do, you know, maybe I can go on a mission trip or, you know, you know, pastor, if I win the lottery, I promise I'll give you 10%. course I'm keeping the 90 you know (laughs) I got to get the house and two kids and the two cars and the boat and all that other stuff because I want to be comfortable you know in the church in general especially in the evangelical world in this last election for years the evangelical church had been praying change this country Lord make it more friendly to the church well, it's obvious, whether, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're on, that there's a shift in the government that is more friendly towards the church at the moment. Now, here's the real issue. Here's what God wants to know. Did you pray that prayer because you're seeking the advancement of the kingdom in this window of opportunity? Or did you pray that prayer so you could be more comfortable? I'm afraid the majority of Christians are praying that prayer so it'll be more comfortable. God doesn't give a rip about your comfort. He doesn't care about your comfort. Jesus didn't care about his comfort. God didn't care that Jesus was not comfortable on the cross. You know what he cared about? He cared about you and me. It says of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Not the pain, not the suffering. Said he despised the shame. In other words, he gave it no thought. He endured the cross for the joy set before. What was the joy? The joy was the victory that he was going to have over the enemy so he could set you and me free. That's the joy. 
didn't do it because it was comfortable. He didn't care about comfort. He cared about you and me. And he's calling us to care more about our own comfort. He's calling us to care about the things of the kingdom. Because there's going to be a day when it's over. See, here's one of the things that really frustrates me about the current church environment is, is this view on end times that, Lord, I would, man, if Jesus would just come back right now, oh, my life would be so much better. I wouldn't have to pay off the house. I could buy that car tomorrow and, you know, and I wouldn't have to make a payment. It'd be awesome. But you know what we don't talk about? We don't talk about the hundreds of millions of people that will go to hell today because we didn't tell them about Jesus. We're interested in our success. It's all about me, baby. Come on, Jesus, take me up to my mansion. I want to go walk on the streets of gold. That's not the kingdom value. The kingdom value is people. The kingdom value is getting out of our lives and allowing Jesus to put his life in us so other people can come to know him today. Paul said it would be better for me to go, but it's more beneficial for you that I stay. And if anybody had suffering, it was Paul. And if anybody had the right to go, Lord, take me out now, it would have been Paul. But he knew the longer I stay, the more beneficial it is for you, the more beneficial it is for the church. And in the church today, we have got to, we've got to switch our thinking. We've got to get off the it's all about me, baby, perspective. We've got to go beyond success. The American dream is a lie. It's a lie. It's all about me. See, in the kingdom, it's all about Jesus. And the kingdom dream is I give up everything for him. Not I gain, I give up. I willingly give up my success so other people can know the victory of Jesus. We've got to go beyond success to the point where we're living in significance. That's where Jesus wants us to be. This is the 25% in the parable of the soya that produced... 30, 60, and 100 fold for the kingdom. 75% of the seed produced nothing. These folks here, they outproduce everybody else combined. 30, 60, and 100 fold. Significance. What is the significant mindset? It's the belief that is categorically different from the other three. It is the one that believes that true hope and security lie only in surrendering everything in obedience to Jesus. 
It's the belief that God will take care of everything else if the person seeks first the kingdom of God. The people with this belief no longer make excuses why they cannot take wise and positive action. They not only have reason why they cannot, but they desire to take that action regardless of how it affects them personally. One of the things I tell my students in, 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 in the, the Bible college is I'm looking to raise up some nation shakers and history makers. Significant people. People who will go out and they will rock their world for Jesus. Who are going to go into their jobs and maybe they're put into the community in, in a significant way and they recognize their importance. Not for themselves, but for Jesus. There's a great example of this going on right now. If anybody's an NBA fan, you know, the Golden State Warriors just won the NBA championship. And one of the greatest players on the planet at the moment, Steph Curry, he said in an interview, he said, I know I'm not here for me. He said, I know this is not about me. It's about me using the influence for Jesus. And he doesn't just say it. He lives it. He's one of the, he is one of the number one players in the NBA right now. And he is the number 72 on the list as far as salary goes. 72. And they asked him, why? Why? Didn't you just go for the gold, baby? You could have written your check. You could be number one. And he said, you know, it's not about me. I'm not here for me. I'm here for him. The abilities and gifts I have are not to build me up. They're to build the kingdom up. I just read an article this morning that says he has a Bible study with the other members of the Golden State Warriors every day. Every day. That's a nation shaker and a history maker right there. That's somebody who's living a significant life who recognizes that their influence is not theirs, it's his. That their life is not theirs, it's his. And where he's been placed, he's been placed for a purpose. And where you are, where you've been placed, see, that's just his job. He gets paid for that. You get paid for a job. You have a job. You've got somewhere where you go every day. And you're placed there on purpose. Your job is not a hindrance to your walk with the Lord. It is part of the process of your influence for the kingdom. But too many times, we're looking at our job to either survive, become stable, or successful. It's all about me, baby. It's just about a paycheck. Or it's about my influence. Or it's about my career. Or it's about my advancement. You know, when I get that corner office, then I'll put up a Jesus poster. It's not about you. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter if you have your corner office or not. Paul was in prison. 
your influence has nothing to do with your position. It has everything to do with the Spirit of God in you. You know, we have a few trees in the back of our house. And, you know, I was looking out the window the other day, and I noticed the shadow of the tree. You know, and the Lord just said, hey, you know, notice the shadow of that tree? How hard is that tree making that shadow? Or how, you know, how hard does that tree work to make that shadow? I thought, wow, that's a good question. It's not, it's not doing anything to make the shadow. He said, that's right. He said, the only reason there's a shadow is because there's a light shining on it. I thought, wow, that shadow is, is an illustration of the tree's influence. And the only reason the shadow's there is because there's a light shining on it. You want influence in your life? Let the light of Jesus shine on you. The only way that happens is when you get in the word, is when you get in and abide in him. Jesus said, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You want to live a significant life? This is not a progression. Well, I've got to go from survival to stability. Then I've got to go stability to success. And then, then I can become. You can go straight here, baby. You can go straight to significance if you will abide in him. Jesus said, I have not come to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Whose will are you going to do? Are you going to do your will? Are you going to do the things you want to do? Man, if I could just get this job, or if I could just get that job, I don't like my boss. I don't like this. I don't like that. Maybe God has you there in that negative environment to be the influence for the kingdom. But instead, you're so caught up in how it's affecting me, you haven't figured out that God wants you to affect it. How do you do that? How did the tree make a shadow? It just stood there. It just was itself. And it allowed the light to shine on it. And that influence flowed out. And you know that if you think about a tree, you know, in the morning, the shadow's towards the back of the, the, the property. In the evening, it's towards the front of the house. Did the tree move the shadow? Nope. Why did the shadow move? Because the light changed its location. So where is your influence at work? Wherever the light of God shines through you. That's where your influence is. It's not a matter of you trying to figure it out. It's a matter of you allowing God to shine his light on you, increase your influence in whatever direction he chooses. It's not up to you. But it does require that you abide in him and he abide in you, because you can do nothing on your own. I can do nothing on my own. Even Jesus himself said, I can do nothing on my own. I only do what I see my father do. In the garden, that night, he said, if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. We have got to get to a point where we're willing to say, you know what, Lord? Not my will. Not my will. Not my will. I want, I want out of here. I don't like this place, but not my will. Do what you want to do. And show me what you're doing so I can join you in it. 
How do you do that? How do you know what the Lord's doing? How do you know what God's doing around you? Anybody want to know what God's will is? Anybody interested in that? Anybody want to know what God's will is? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. See, I think a lot of Christians, we sit around and we think, or we don't consciously say this, but we just have this belief that God's will is some mystery, some mystical thing that, you know, maybe we'll fall into it. I don't know. I just can't seem to, see, you know, some people fall into God's will and others don't. I'm not sure how it happens. Some secret formula somewhere. There is no secret formula. It's very straightforward. In fact, the Word of God tells you exactly how you can know the will of God. Anybody want to know what verse that is? <laughs> how do I know the will of God? Wait a minute, it's in there? It says that? It says you can know the will of God? Ah, maybe you're a little more interested in the Word than you thought. But before we get there, we've got to start here. You, you knew I was going to get to circle sometime. For those of you who have never seen this before, it's probably like three of you. <laughs> we all have what's called a body, a soul. When I say the soul, what I'm talking about is the mind, the will, and the emotions. And then in the middle is our spirit. Now here's the real problem. Here's why we can do nothing on our own. We are all born with a spiritually genetic disease the Bible calls sin. If you're born on earth, you're born with sin. There's no escape in it. This is the problem. That sin infects our soul. It infects the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act. And that infection leads to what we traditionally call sin, the action. The reality is the action, this is actually the fruit of the sin that's in us. If you're doing stuff you know you shouldn't be doing, it's because you have sin sickness in you. Now, before you're a Christian, you don't have a choice. You are a slave to sin. This is what I mean by the world. You know, the big question uh, as far as the homosexual lifestyle is, is are they born this way? <laughs> yeah, everybody's born this way. We're all born in sin. Okay, it's the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. It has nothing to do with this is the manifestation of it, homosexuality, pornography, sex, drugs, rock and roll, all that stuff. That's not the problem. This is the problem. And we're all born this way. We don't have a choice. We're slaves to sin. And before Jesus, there's no hope. Now, Here's what happens in the gospel. In the gospel, and this is why the gospel is so much bigger than a heaven or hell issue. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Romans tells us, Paul, Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. And when God told Adam and Eve, the day of you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die. Okay, the wages of sin being death didn't become death when Paul wrote it in Romans. It was true at the very beginning. So when Adam and Eve 
reached out, grabbed that fruit, death entered into life. It wasn't just physical death. It was relational death between each other, relational death between God, death of their identity. They all of a sudden felt guilt, shame, and condemnation. Death is more than just physical. There's a lot of death. That's what I mean, that a lot of Christians' lives are marked by death. So in the gospel, here's what Jesus offers. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus offers a great exchange. He will take that sin core out and replace it with truth through the power of the Holy Spirit. What's the truth? That we are now righteous in his sight. Peter says we have become partakers or partners in the divine nature. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. When you ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you say, you don't just walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign a card, or become a church member. You are coming to Jesus and saying, take my sin and give me your righteousness. That's what you're saying. And he will do that. But it requires not just an exchange of the sin, it requires an exchange of your entire life. He's not asking just for this. He's asking for the whole thing. He wants you. Now, even though that exchange has happened, that sin sickness that's infected our soul is still there. That's why as a Christian, you can still sin. So what's the remedy? How do we get rid of this? Because the truth is already there. The reality is we are righteous in his sight. We just don't believe it yet. And really, that's what sin is. Sin is believing a lie. When Adam and Eve were standing there looking at that tree, and the serpent came up and said, hmm, Hey, um, you know, you're really not going to die. Actually, you're going to be like God. Here's the problem. They were already like God. So when the serpent said, hey, you're going to be like God, what did that imply? It implied they weren't like God. It was a lie. And you know what? They believed it. And so do we. Right now, you believe a lie about yourself, about God, about other people, about circumstances, about life. That's what these little X's are. They're lies you believe about yourself, God, whatever. And a lie only has power when you believe it. Because you're not going to act on something you don't believe. If I tell you, come up, and, come up on the stage and, and, and walk off, don't worry, you won't fall. It's a lie. You're not going to believe that. Now, here it's no big deal, but I've put you on top of the building. Oh, yeah, walk off, no problem. You won't fall. You're not going to fall. Psh, ah, gravity, whatever, is a lie. You're not going to believe that because it's a lie. So you're not going to do it. But when you act on something that you believe, you empower it in your life. 
So there's things in our lives we believe that are lies. The truth that is in us wants to counteract those lies. And over time, what, what the Lord wants to do is let that truth infect our soul just like the sin did and eradicate the lie with the truth. How does that happen? It happens by getting in the Word. See, Hebrews 4.12 says this. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner or a revealer of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What does that mean? It shows you the lies you believe, compares it with the truth, and now you've got a choice. But the problem is, see, when we reduce the gospel to a heaven or hell issue, we forget that the gospel has become an identity issue for us. So when God brings these things to the surface, what do we feel? We feel guilt. We feel shame. And we think God's condemning us. He's not. It's like going to a doctor and getting an x-ray, and the doctor sees something on the x-ray, and, you know, you walk in. You know, I was at the dentist the other day, and they, they do the, the x-rays, and they check your teeth, you know. And the dentist came in and looked at the x-ray, and he didn't see anything, hallelujah. But if he saw something, and he said, hey, you know, there's, i got this little spot here under this tooth. You know, Brendan, you're a loser. you got this on your tooth. What a moron. What's wrong with you? I'd be getting a new dentist. And a lot of times, that's what we think God's doing to us. When he brings these things to the surface, we think he's mocking us. Why? Because we're drawing our identity from what we do rather than from Jesus. Our identity is not in what we do or what we've done or what we can do. It's in Jesus. The gospel gives us a brand new identity that tells us we are worthy, we are good, we are whole in his sight. So when God brings these things to the surface, it's not to mock you, it's not to condemn you, it's to say, hey, you got this in you, and by the way, I've already given you victory over it. Let me walk you through it and out of it. That's why you got to be in the Word every day, because it's living and active. It's like spiritual medicine. And as you feed your spirit, it begins to release that truth and begins to eradicate that sin sickness by showing you the truth. And now you got a choice. Am I going to believe the truth, or am I going to believe a lie? And the more Word you get in you, the more power you have over that sin. You already have the power. You just don't realize it. You just don't know it. So you want to know how to know God's will? Anybody interested in that? You want to know what verse says you can know God's will? I may make you come to Sunday class for that one. <laughs> Turn to Romans. Romans. Hey, you all know the verse. I'm telling you right now I'm going to read it. Yeah, I know that verse. Let me read it to you in this context. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, 
that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord, which is your spiritual act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your so that you may know what is that good and acceptable and perfect. Oh, you want to know what God's will is? Present yourself submitted to God. Allow him to renew your mind and you will know what God's will is. Period. It's just that simple. That's how it happens. But you got to get it in the Word. You got to get it in the Word. You can't let it sit on the shelf and look pretty and make your house look holy. God's not interested in your house being holy, He's interested in you realizing you are holy in Him because of the gospel. So how does the word actually do that? Well, we're going to talk about that next week. Next week, on Wednesday night, I'm going to show you how the word of God transforms you from the inside out. Because God's not interested in changing your behavior. He's interested in transforming your character. He's not, he doesn't want you to stop doing the wrong thing. He wants you to become the type of person who has no desire to do that in the first place. Christianity is not a behavioral modification program. It's a character transformation relationship with Jesus where you don't stop doing the wrong thing. You become the type of person who has no interest in doing it in the first place. That's what Christianity is all about. And next week, we're going to talk about how that happens. And that's what we do on Sunday morning. As we talk about this, and we create an environment where reading the Word of God is normal, where it's fun, and you learn not just to do it, but you learn what's in here. There's, this, is, this is the greatest book ever written. And God wrote it for you and for me so we could be transformed, so the church could be the influence in a community, in a city, in a county, in a state, in a nation, in the world. God is raising up nation shakers and history makers. You don't have to go to seminary to be one. You just got to surrender. So if you're ready to be a history maker and a nation shaker, I encourage you to join us on Sunday mornings, 10.30 this week, starting next week, 9 and 10.30. And next Wednesday, we're going to talk about how that word, when it gets in you, makes that transition and transforms you from being overcome by all these problems... to being an overcomer of these problems. Discipleship is not the removal of your problem. The discipleship 
Discipleship is about creating in you an overcomer who, when they're faced with a problem, doesn't back down. Will you stand with me? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a minute and just close your eyes and just ask the Lord to search your heart. Ask the Lord to search your heart. Ask him to show you. Ask him to reveal to you, to discern the thoughts and intents of your heart. Are you in survival mode? Are you in stability mode? Are you in success mode? Do you have a desire to be significant in the kingdom, to be a 25 percenter, to produce 30, 60, and 100 fold, to be a nation shaker and a history maker, to see multitudes of people through your influence be healed, saved, and delivered in Jesus' name? That's something only you can decide between you and Jesus. He wants it for you. I'll tell you that right now. If you're wondering, does he, can he do that in me? Uh, yeah, the answer is yes. Let's just settle that right now. So Lord, I pray a blessing on each and every person here tonight. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would encourage them right now. We just rebuke the voice of the enemy that is trying to condemn anyone here tonight. That what they've done or what has been done to them has been too much to overcome. That you, Jesus, are the overcomer. That you're bigger. You're greater. And that nothing and no one can stop you from transforming your people into the sons and daughters you've called them to be. So tonight, Father, I pray that in each and every life that your name would be glorified. And tonight, Lord, that your people would make a commitment to to present themselves as living sacrifices, holy and presentable to you. And that they would allow your word to transform their minds so that they would know what your good, pleasing, and perfect will is. And Lord, I thank you that that is a prayer you will answer. And Lord, we just pray that in all of this, that your name is glorified. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. A couple really 